But significance is a philosophical term, and I think significance can be gauged in other ways, and one of them is the fact that we are here, that we've come through this 13.8 billion year development of the universe to the point where we can have this self-contemplating life that recognizes a bit of where we've come from and how we connect to the universe, and I would say also recognizes our own um, fallenness. Welcome to another episode of Reenchanting. We are the podcast from Seen and Unseen, and we're part of the Centre for Cultural Witness. And as ever, you can find more about us, more about the Centre, and far more content on seenandunseen.com. I am Belle Tindall. And I'm Justin Briley. And this is only our third episode. We are still brand new. So if you are watching on video, uh, would you like and subscribe? If you are listening on podcast, if you could rate and review the show, and all of that helps other people to discover Reenchanting. It certainly does. And we are so pleased to be joined on today's episode by astronomer Jennifer Wiseman. Uh, Jennifer has served as the Emeritus Director of the Programme for Dialogue on Science, Ethics and Religion for the American Association for the Advancement of Science. She's also a senior astrophysicist at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Centre, where she serves as the senior project scientist for the Hubble Space Telescope. So alongside her literally stellar career in astronomy, Jennifer has also frequently spoken on the interaction of her Christian faith with the science she does. So today with Jennifer on the podcast, we're going to talk about our culture's fascination with space travel, with sci-fi, with the stars above us and where it all came from, and ask the question, how can we re-enchant our sense of who we are and the universe in which we find ourselves? So welcome along to the show, Jennifer. Great to have you with us. And um, the way we we always start this program is by simply asking as we normally record at the top of a library in London, though we're obviously doing this remotely because you're joining us from the US, but what are you currently reading? What's currently on your bedstand, as it were? Well, currently on my bedstand is a stack of about 15 books that I <laughs> hope to read, and I start reading <laughs> and about, uh, you know, 30 seconds later, I'm asleep. But uh, but the one that keeps me that keeps me alert that I'm really in the middle of and... and um, getting a lot out of is a book actually by a a, a UK author, um, um, N.T. Wright's book called Surprised by Hope. Mm. And I am really getting a lot of wonderful new insights from that book. So um, I'm halfway through and I highly recommend it. Yeah. Well, well, N.T. Wright, Tom Wright, as he's also known, is is an incredibly influential theologian, someone who is is involved with seen and unseen, uh, mm. who are the, the folk who uh, oversee this podcast. But um, that's wonderful to hear. Um, and yeah, it'd be interesting to kind of get your take on the theological sort of aspects of perhaps that book and other things that you've been reading and researching, how it interacts with your your science as well. But um, before we kind of leap into your your own scientific career and, and faith and so on, Jennifer, uh, I, it was just interesting to me that only this past week we've seen a big space story, the, the launch of the super heavy starship by SpaceX. Obviously, um, 
the launch happened, but it did unfortunately explode um, somewhere above Earth. Um, though I understand people are still saying that's that success at some level. I, I just wondered if you have any thoughts on that that particular event from last week. Well, I um, watched it and, and heard about it like uh, people around the world did. And I think it's really quite exciting that humanity is taking further steps to to make our access as humans um, uh, um, easier. Now, of course, right now, the only people who are doing these kinds of launches are are a very small, <laughs> a very small fraction of earthlings, but it is the first step. And the hope is, of course, that as these endeavors hopefully become more safe and successful, that it will be easier for ordinary people um, to have access to space for all kinds of reasons. Um, those can include, you know, uh, scientific research. It can include exploration. It can also include, you know, people who just want the experience of going into space. So, so this is an interesting step. And of course, every step in, in trying, uh, um, new endeavors for humanity that involve some risk, um, they also involve some, failure along the way. So, uh, you know, I don't think anyone was terribly mm. surprised by what happened, but hopefully that will um, help um, this uh, organization and others to develop uh, even more uh, savvy uh, procedures for getting spacecraft yeah. and eventually humans uh, into uh, these uh, more powerful rockets that can go farther. So, you know, we've already got humans in space right now in the international space station and of course uh, humans have already been uh, to the moon uh, decades ago but the idea is to make it a little easier for people to mm. actually spend a longer periods of time in the lunar environment and then uh, before too long to mars and so it's an interesting interplay between you know government sponsored space agencies and now commercial and private space companies and and you know there's there's a few uh procedures and kinks to be worked out but that's all part of the path yeah. i mean obviously the big personality in this is is elon musk um who's who's well known for, for not just spacex but lots of other things but he does seem to have this vision for for really getting the kind of colonization at least of our solar system going do you do you think that's a a realistic vision i know there's already plans for more kind of moon landings underway do you think mars is is a realistic prospect within our generation well i do think it's a realistic prospect um there are people and again uh, uh, from different organizations uh, um uh, uh um working on this challenge of people both going farther into space which requires more powerful rockets and in, in, in spacecraft that can endure a multi-year trip, but also the human body and mind uh, has not been evolved over time to to be in the, that kind of space-like environment. So there are mm -hmm. a lot of issues that need to be addressed in terms of human health, um, physical endurance and health of being in a reduced gravity environment for for Mars, it might be something like a three-year round trip if you spend any significant time there. Um, what happens to your bones, your muscles, the fluids in your bodies uh, uh, tends to shift when you're in uh, um, weightless conditions over time, and that can actually impact your eyes, uh, your retina in, in damaging ways. 
uh, things I hadn't heard about, but, uh, but um, I'm learning from my husband who works in this whole business of, of human uh, health and well-being in space. Um, you know, our bodies process nutrition differently when we're in space and even the foods themselves, the nutritional value of them changes over long-term space flight. The medicines uh, um, that would be taken along, they uh, lose some of their efficacy over time. The body's immune system changes over time. So there's those kinds of mm-hmm. things that have to be addressed as well. And they're kind of all intertwined. And they're intertwined also with psychological challenges. I mean, can you imagine being in a, a metal can for years with a, the same small group of people? And as much as you might like them before you step on the spacecraft, you know, how are you going to feel a year later when you can't get out? You know, so so there's all kinds of um, of challenges. And of course, we've all seen enough science fiction to have imagined what this might be like. Mm. Um, but to, to make it reality is something that's actually possible, but yeah. challenging. So uh, so I think it is feasible. It also takes the will of of people to want to support and fund such such ventures um and hopefully it will be used um in a way that is unifying to peoples of the world and exciting and used for peaceful exploration of space so that's that's my hope Mm, it's such I I feel like I need to put my cards on the table early doors and say that this is not my area of expertise science in general let alone sort of astrophysics in particular um so I'm really excited about this conversation but as I was thinking about it it strikes me that we are in such an exciting time in history you know we're able to go and explore what is beyond our earth and in the scope of history that's a tiny dot of time that we've been able to do that and that's so exciting that we are in that time with all of like you say its complexities and its nuances and its little kinks to be worked out um but for someone you know like me who is an absolute novice when it comes to space and astrophysics and all of that what new and exciting things are being discovered or explored or pondered at the moment? Well, there's a lot. So so now we're kind of taking the leap from what we were discussing, which is sort of where humans might go in the coming years, which is yeah. really confined to, to a part of space very close to Earth. You know, we, 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 we're on the space station orbiting planet Earth. We may go back, we, we will go back to our lunar environment. Um, and we have probes already studying the moon, studying Mars, studying the other planets and and moons in our own solar system. But with astronomy, um, you can, of course, explore much farther than just our own solar system, right around our own star. Mm -hmm. We can study other star systems. We can study across uh, our own Milky Way galaxy, which contains 100 billion stars, probably twice that many. And we can see other galaxies. We can even see, uh, um, basically we're seeing back in time with astronomy because of course, everything we look at in space, we're basically seeing the light that's coming from that source, either mm. radiated from that source or reflected off that source. But in in, in either case, the, the, the light is traveling across space time to get to us and to get to our telescope. And space is very big, so it takes a long time. Even the nearest star to our own 
sun is four what we call light years away. A light year is a unit of distance. It's the distance that light travels in a year. And so it, meaning that as we look at even the nearest star, we're seeing as, as it was four years ago, not as it is right this mm, moment. Sure. And with astronomy and astrophysics, we can, of course, see across our galaxy, which is 150,000 light years across. And we can see other galaxies, which are typically millions, or now we're seeing galaxies even billions of light years away, which means we're seeing closer to the beginning of our very universe. So what are we discovering? Um, A lot. It's really an exciting (laughs) time. And and so I could go on for hours, but I'm going to just mention two general areas that are of I think the the, the hottest uh, uh, interest in mm. astronomy and astrophysics right now, astrophysics kind of being the the application of physics to what we observe in in the universe. And one of those um, is the study of planetary systems outside of our own solar system. So, you know, way back when I was in university and in graduate school, we didn't know of any stars other than our sun that had planets orbiting Mm. we thought they were there but we just didn't have the technology to detect them and well then through the late 1990s um this technique of detecting little tiny planets orbiting very bright stars um became uh um, more sophisticated and we started discovering these exoplanets that that means planets outside of our solar system um by the hundreds and now the thousands and in using different techniques so this study of exoplanetary systems has now become one of the primary um focal points of astronomy and astrophysics around the world We've discovered, as I mentioned, thousands of other star systems that have their own planets. We can do the statistics from that and and deduce that, on average, every star in our galaxy has at least one planet. So, so now the frenzy is on to try to understand what those planets are like. You know, could they be mm-hmm. like the planets in our own solar system? Um, we know that in many cases they are not. Some of them are these giant Jupiter or bigger sized gas giant planets that are orbiting much closer to their parent star than any planet does in our own solar system. So we call them hot Jupiters. Um, most planets actually seem to be a size that's different than what we have in our solar system. Most of them are, um, or many of them are a little bigger than Earth like we might call them a super earth, but smaller than Neptune in that kind of middle range. So anyway, we want to know whether these planets are uh, even, whether they might have uh, water and atmospheres. And of course, we're curious to know whether they might be habitable for life, even simple life. So that's one hot topical area. Uh, and then the other kind of end of the range, I, I would say, of, of exciting forefront areas for astronomy and astrophysics is looking at the whole universe. Um, And that can sometimes be called cosmology as we look at the the universe as a whole, all of its hundreds of billions of galaxies. And each one of those galaxies contains billions of stars. And looking at the, 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 the interrelationship of these galaxies over time, and we're finding that there's an interplay from the beginning of our universe between 
um, gravity, which is, as we understand it classically, is always trying to pull matter together, and a repulsive force that we don't mm-hmm. quite understand, but we call dark energy, which yeah. is accelerating at this point the expansion of the universe. So how did this interplay of dark energy, you know, pushing things out or a repulsive force and and uh, and matter, which is trying to pull things in, uh, interplay over time to create the distribution of galaxies and stars that we have today. And uh, keeping in mind that most of the matter out there is actually unseen, what we call dark matter. We, we know it's there from its gravitational effects. So uh, this dark energy was only discovered not too many years ago, and, and a Nobel Prize has been awarded for the finding of this acceleration of the universe, but we still don't know exactly what it is. So that's a hot topical area. So those are two things that come to mind. Yeah. I just, I can't imagine even just hearing, I'm sure you're, you're very kindly just scratching the surface for (laughs) people like me. And even that, I just, how does it feel to be in a field where the exploration and wonder literally runs is a thread that runs through the core of what you, that must just be, does it feel a bit like a privilege, like just a constantly exciting privilege to be a part of this exploration? I will say it's a constant privilege to be a part of this enterprise. And, and, and mm. that's why I am so thankful to be a part of it. Um, I wouldn't say that it's constantly exciting because like every job, <laughs> most sure. of the time <laughs> is not spent contemplating and, and, dis- and discussing the wonders of the universe. Most of the time is spent with email and uh, managing budgets and, and uh, <laughs> deadlines and proposals. And, uh, and I do uh, uh, um, kind of oversight work uh, regarding science and so forth. So that involves a lot of policy issues and, and things that are not always um, fun and exciting. Um, but I think for all of us, in fact, whatever career or, or profession one has, um, it, it's very important every once in a while to step back and look at the big picture and to know that, you know, your part and my part, it it may be very small. It may even seem a little mundane. Mm -hmm. um, And yet it plays a part in something hopefully bigger and important. Uh If it doesn't, you should think about doing something (laughs) different. If, if what you're contributing to is not a positive force in the world, but but most people do have positions that, you know, whether it's being involved in science or whether it's, you know, being at home, raising children, or whether it is um, doing service work, you know, working in a yeah. restaurant, working at, yeah. uh, uh, y- you know, cleaning up rubbish, whatever it is, if it's part of something that's helping our world and our future be a better place, mm-hmm. then that should hopefully you know, re-energize every once in a uh, while when, uh, when when life gets a little bit uh, uh, stressful or mundane. I, I I love the fact that even astrophysicists have to do emails and balance budgets. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm sure I'm sure wrong. it is. It is I'm that sure is... it is exciting though when when you do discover a new exoplanet and so on. But but just coming back to your story, Jennifer, um, I I know you've had a fascination with the universe from an early age. You've also been been a Christian from a young age as well. What did those two kind of go hand in hand as you were growing up? The, this fascination with the universe we're in, and and a sense that there is a god behind it. Hmm. 
Yes, I, I I love that kind of questioning, keeping in mind that this whole interview is is me representing my personal perspectives. Um, I grew up in the middle part of the United States on a farm um, in a rural area in what we call the Ozark Mountains. Um, they're really they're really hills, but we like to remind everyone that you know millions of years ago they were taller than the Rocky Mountains, but they've kind of eroded over time. Anyway, this is a part of of the the country where um, it's pretty undisturbed in in many ways. Um, There are forests and rivers and lakes. Um, Some of those lakes are actually human made, so you could call that a disturbance. But they're 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 it's still a beautiful place to to grow up. And because I um, experienced that in childhood, I was always you know, perhaps didn't even appreciate it, but always immersed in nature and in the natural world. I was able to just on our own farm, go out and and explore streams and meadows and forests and and to experience every day a change due to the seasons or or the weather and to see wildlife of all kinds. I'm a big lover of animals of all kinds, um, domesticated and wild and I appreciated that. And I also experienced the night sky. We we had a dark sky at that time, which is a rare privilege now. But, you know, we could easily see stars from horizon to horizon. So I was curious about what I saw. And this all was happening at a time when um, we as as humanity were getting some of the first close-up images of of our solar system, the outer planets and their moons from these probes called the Voyager probes that had been sent out. And they followed uh, some earlier probes called the Pioneers. But anyway, these probes were sending back these close-up pictures of these exotic worlds like the moons of Jupiter, Europa and Io and and some uh, some of these other uh, um, just incredibly interesting places. And I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to know how mm-hmm. I could be part of that exploration enterprise. The, um, the, the, the film industry was producing at that time, uh, uh, the, the first episodes of star Wars and, and other science fiction movies. So it was space was on everybody's mind. Yeah. So I wanted to be a part of that. And then part of my upbringing also was in the church. And I, uh, grew up in a Christian family and in a loving church congregation for which I am very grateful. We weren't near any big universities. We were hours away from from a city that had any kind of, of university. We uh, didn't know any scientists. My own parents were were unable to to go to to university, but they wanted to make sure their 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 children did. And um. You know, we didn't know about formal science in that sense, but I think the church instilled in me some things that made it um, an open door for me to to pursue okay. a scientific career. One was that we appreciated that everything in nature is is God's creation, so it's it's good. Um, you know, this is a, a world that God intended to be good, and that therefore. Uh, everything that we would study, whether it's, you know, mountains or, or plants or animals or stars would be part of, of God's doing. And so, so that kind of opened the door that, that, that science should be something that honors God. The second thing was that um, we learned humility. Um, I think I grew up learning, 
you know, just a, a fairly literal reading of scripture when it comes to to uh, creation and so forth, because, you know, why not? But that that was kind of the, the take we had. But but we also learned a sense of humility that God hasn't told us everything in scripture about the details of the natural world. We should be humble about scripture as well as being humble about what we learn about the natural world. And I think that helped me later on to, when some of the difficult questions would come up mm. about the relationship of certain scriptural passages with what we're studying and learning in, in mainstream science, that sense of humility toward scripture, respecting it as God's word, um, and trying to understand what God's true message was intended in those scriptures helped me. And then thirdly, just the encouragement of of a loving church family and a loving personal family that were willing to support me, even if I did something, you know, unorthodox and just- and and give me the confidence. Also, my teachers in, in school were were encouraging to us to reach high and try things. So I, I ended going up doing kind of a non-traditional path and going to university far away to study physics and eventually astronomy, uh, uh, astrophysics. I, and I, I'm guessing though, as, as your career progressed, you bumped into many colleagues, scientific colleagues who didn't share your faith or perhaps were even a- actively invested against it at some level who were, you know, didn't believe there was a God. I mean, is is that common in in your area of work to to meet people who are skeptical of God claims, um, and and what kind of conversations do you end up having with them about it? Hmm. That's interesting. So so certainly, I've met people from across the spectrum of 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 spiritual or religious beliefs in my professional career. Um, I I think though that actually. For the most part, my scientific colleagues, first of all, we don't get into these kind of discussions usually either yeah. ever or or certainly <laughs> not uh, um, in our initial uh, uh, professional conversations. It's usually only after years of getting yeah. to know someone on a personal level that you you would even talk about those kinds of of deeper philosophical or or, or religious thought. But that said, most of the scientists I interact with um, who are actually practicing scientists understand that science is really good at addressing certain kinds of questions. How how do the forces of nature work? How have they worked over time? Um, And, and, you know, studying those those types of natural forces and and uh, uh, the makeup of our universe in that sense but 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 they and we understand that science just doesn't answer some of these bigger philosophical religious questions it's not even designed to so when if a an outspoken scientist says something like you know science has disproved god or something like that or on the flip side if some scientist ever said that science does prove god most of us, whether we're religious scientists or not, realize that that's way out of bounds because science can explain how things work and maybe how things have developed and worked over time in the natural world. But we can't measure with a microscope or a telescope whether or not God exists or, or you know, mm. how prayer works or, or you know, uh, how love I mean, we can study a little bit of those aspects in terms of the way our brains operate, but those are mm-hmm. just some aspects of these realities. Yeah. So just just let me just quickly summarize that I have not actually experienced a lot of 
of um, hostility toward toward faith from fellow scientists, even those who are not people of faith. Most of this, to me, seems to be coming out more in our popular culture, where there's kind mm-hmm. of an expectation that science mm-hmm. is somehow going to be the the ultimate savior, the ultimate thing we can trust, um, and the only kind of legitimate truth. And and that is an extrapolation that's really unwarranted from what science can and cannot do. And so when I hear, you know, people in our popular culture or commenting on social media in such a way that's that's using science as kind of the the, the reason to to denigrate um any kind of religious faith, I just have to scratch my head because it's not the scientists for the most part who are saying mm. that. Mm, that's so interesting. I'm thinking of um I don't know what his reputation is like in America or if he even has one actually, but over here we have this comedian to an author and he's an atheist, David Baddiel. And he's just released a new book called The God Desire, um, an atheist, a book about atheism. And he has this, it's a, it's a tiny little book. It's really great, by the way, to any listeners. I disagree with everything he says, but he says it so well. It's and we're book. hoping to bring him on the podcast as well. So if you're listening, oh. David Baddiel, we would love to have you on. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'll be more careful about what I'm about to say. <laughs> um, but he has just a couple of pages about the universe and... I think he doth protest too much, you know, because he says that um, any wonder that people sense in the universe, we bring the wonder, we project that onto what we're seeing, onto astronomy, onto astrophysics. And I'm not convinced by that because I think, like you say, I I think that's someone who hasn't spent enough time looking at it because science, like the the wonder comes from from what you're seeing surely and what you're exploring and that seems to be the case absolutely from what you're saying but also I think that might be the what I'm sensing from the wider sort of the the wider world of astronomy what do you think about this idea that we bring the wonder well I I would need to read read the book but I you know I do think there is some uh, um there's some truth to this that we, we we do sometimes bring to whatever we're experiencing or seeing what we expect or what, you know, some of our uh, life experience we bring into what we observe. So even, you know, in my own case, I, I, I was a Christian before I became a scientist. And so, Mm -hmm. as I mentioned, you know, I was, I, I've sort of steeped in the idea that, that nature is, is good to study. And so therefore there's no sense of, of you know fear or trepidation because we're going to find interesting things whatever we study and it and it's a good enterprise so you know some of you bring your kind of worldview with you i think mm. in, in a lot of ways so so in in that sense um there there is uh, some truth in that but on the other hand just this idea of wonder i mean that the, the word itself implies a curiosity right that 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 what we're observing and what we're learning so is so amazing that it actually fertilizes more curiosity as to to how did this happen and then i think we there is a very legitimate sense of amazement when we look mm-hmm. at and again i'm thinking about the the universe as a whole but i think you could have the same reaction if you're looking at very small things, if you're looking into mm. the, the nuts and bolts of biology or this, yeah. this kind yeah. of work, but 
But when we look at the universe as a whole, and remember I mentioned to you that astronomy is a time machine, so we can Mm. actually see what the universe was like in the past. In fact, throughout most of the 13.8 billion years of cosmic history, we can actually look and see what it was like back then because we can look at these more distant galaxies and see what they looked like and what their composition was. And what we have learned is that early, the first galaxies, in fact, the new Webb telescope is seeing some of these early baby galaxies. They started forming early on uh, through conglomerations of the earliest atoms, the earliest gas. And those earliest little gas clouds produced the earliest stars, which were very simple, mostly made of hydrogen and not much else. Those stars came and went, but stars are little factories that as they shine, they are creating heavier elements in their cores. That's through this process of fusion. And when they run out of fuel in their cores, they disperse this material that they have created um, into the interstellar medium, the gas, and then it gets caught up in the next generations of stars. What that means is that over time, these galaxies that are full of these stars coming and going are maturing. And we can see that we can measure Mm -hmm. their sizes as they merge together and grow into bigger galaxies. And more importantly, their compositions get more complicated over time as their stars come and go, creating eventually what we need for planets and life in our epoch of time. So our sun in our planets around our sun, our sun is not a first generation star. It required previous generations of stars to produce the heavier stuff that enabled dust and planets to form when our star formed about four and a half billion years ago. Our galaxy formed maybe 12 billion years ago, but our own star system only formed about four and a half billion years ago. It's it's not a first generation star. I'm saying all that to say that what we can see now is this progression of the universe Mm. from this burst of inflation and energy to the transition of energy into matter and from the development, the cooling Mm. and development of that material to to under these precise laws of of physics to form gravitationally bound stars that can create heavier elements that have enabled eventually star systems with planets to form. And in at least one of those star systems, a planet that has life, and not only life, but life that over time has become more complex to the point where we are here having a conversation about how did we get here. To (laughs) me, that is absolutely mind-blowing, awesome, wonderful, and and it is objectively so. You know, Mm -hmm. it isn't just that we've already anticipated this kind of thing. This is a surprise. I mean, humanity for most of history didn't know about this progressive history of the universe. Now we do. And I think that that is an objective sense of awe uh, or or that gives us a very valid uh, um, response of curiosity, awe, wonder, humility, and hopefully gratitude uh, for mm-hmm. the fact that 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 we are here and we understand a bit about our connection to the universe in both space and time. We'll have to get you back when we do get David Badil on the show, yeah, <laughs> Jennifer, sure. to, to have that conversation. <laughs> yeah. no, but, but in all seriousness, I, I mean, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, 
you know, because I, I have a background, I've had the opportunity to talk with many people in the scientific world, both Christian and non-Christian. And and I'm aware that there's always this tussle between those who say, sort of in the Carl Sagan style, who obviously when he saw those first photos from Voyager 1 looking back on Earth, you know, look at us, this pale blue dot, you know, there's we're, we're so small and insignificant. It's, it's you know, the, the height of... Uh, arrogance to assume this universe was made for us or we're we're just this tiny little planet you know in this vast cosmos on the other hand you have those who say but as you were sort of hinting at look at the precision the way in which the 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 forces of the universe are fine-tuned to allow life to develop at some point in the cosmos um and even even people like einstein who said the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is its comprehensibility the fact as you said we simple humans with our brains can do science that we that is written mm. in the law of mathematics and so on so i mean i suppose what i'm gearing up to is what do you think can in essentially can you look at the world the universe and the science we do it with and say it does point beyond itself in some way there are telltale signs at least that that there could be a mind behind this whole show I think, yes, I, I think the answer is yes, but it, that's a philosophical response, not, mm-hmm. I would be cautious to say that there's a scientifically driven uh, response, because um, I think the fine tuning of the universe, again, you know, you can you can read the numbers, but, you know, if the, the, the constants of gravity and electromagnetism were just slightly different than our then stars would not have developed the way they did and, and planetary systems and so forth. And that is fascinating, but um, you know, that there's, there's this possibility that we're just an accidental universe and a bunch of other universes, you know, in a multiverse. So, so I, I fine tuning arguments only go so far. I think they're interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I was a person of faith long before I ever heard a fine tuning argument. Sure. So I don't, I think you don't need a fine tuning argument as a, as an apologetic. And in fact, if we found out tomorrow that in fact, the universe isn't fine tuned, that, that any number of fundamental <laughs> forces could have led to, to planets and life um, that wouldn't make the universe any less amazing. Sure. Um, so, so I, I'm a little uh, cautious about kind of using things that we see in the universe to, to, you know, definitively point to some kind of, of uh, intelligence tinkering kind of thing. On the other hand, to me, the, the whole progression of the universe, as I mentioned, from, you know, from a burst of energy to planets and life that can contemplate itself, that whole picture to me points to a sense of purpose I would be cautious also about saying that the purpose is humans. I mean, and, right. and, and here I, I go to my own Christian, uh, personal Christian faith, but in our faith, the purpose of the universe is not humans. The purpose of the universe is to glorify God. So, uh, so we're part of that, thankfully, and yet, you know, we get a sense that as you le- read different poetic passages in scripture, that all of the universe is glorifying God and praising God in that sense, just by existing, whether it's stars, planets, and and all the, the features and creatures of, of planet Earth. So, um, 
you know, it, it is true that if we if we think of significance in terms of where we are in the universe or in space or time and, and how long our lifespan is, then we are very insignificant. I, I mm. think we should all take a look at that pale blue dot picture that you mentioned and take a deep gulp of humility because um, our planet is small and 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 fragile, I would say. And, and um, one reason we need to be better stewards of this little planet um, so significance cannot, we cannot take our significance, I think, from place in space or time, uh, because then that is, we are insignificant, but significance is a philosophical term. And, yeah. and I think significance can be gauged in other ways. And, and one of them is the fact that we are here, that we've come through this 13.8 billion year development of the universe to the point where we can have this self-contemplating life that recognizes a bit of where we've come from and how we connect to the universe. And I would say also recognizes our own um, fallenness. You know, people around the world recognize good and evil and, um, and we see things going on every day in the news that we know are not right. And that mm-hmm. to me is another piece of evidence that the, the gospel, that's the good news that's revealed in scripture is, is true because it, it acknowledges the bad news that, that humans, um, we sin, you know, we, we do things that are wrong. There is such a thing as right and wrong. We, we, we do things to each other that are right and wrong we do things to other creatures that are not right and we have a tinge of a conscience about that yeah. i think c.s lewis wrote about that as well and in, in his uh mere christianity that there's something even though it's culturally expressed in different ways but that we have come to the point in our evolution where we recognize responsibility and we yeah. yearn for a relationship with god and those are things that you can't measure with the microscope and the telescope. So that's why I say there's there's many yeah. important truths that are outside the realm of what science can can measure. But um, but I do think uh, there there is this sense that I get of how the universe has progressed, the amazing things we see in the universe, and how we've come here that I think can point to a sense of, of purpose. Um, in our lives and in the universe. Mm. I I hope you can't sense my brain melting on <laughs> <laughs> because it definitely is. Um I um I'm glad you've said the weird the weird's mind blowing, Jennifer, because it means that that gives permission to what's happening in here right now. <laughs> um obviously if we look at sort of the um like the the Bible, the Christian Bible, particularly sort of like the books of Psalms and things like that. Um so we're talking thousands of years ago and actually in the scale of what have you, what was it? 13 billion. Yeah. 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 Actually that's really not ancient history at all, is it? But they, um, they speak yeah. about the stars and the universe in slightly different ways. And obviously now we know more about the intricacies of how they work. We can apply the physics of things to it, but is there still things you think we can learn from, you know, the way ancient texts like the Bible, like the Psalms speak about the universe and the stars and all of these things? Oh, absolutely. I, not the scientific details, you know, the, to yeah. me, science is a gift of God for us to 
understand more of the details. I mean, to, to me, it's amazing that just a century ago, we didn't even know there were other galaxies. Mm. You know, now we know there are hundreds of billions of them only in the observable universe and even more that are so far yeah. out that the light will never get to us. So, <laughs> so we, um, uh, uh, we don't glean, I, I think it's improper to try to glean scientific detail out of scriptures that were not written for that purpose. You know, script, science was only invented a few centuries ago, right? So, sure. so, so we, we, um, we need to make sure that we respect scripture by understanding its original audience, the original culture to which it was spoken, the, the, what the audience would have understood, what, um, what uh what the message is that god's trying to get across you know that this is i, I recommend the books by the way by john walton uh, like like um uh, the lost world of genesis one the, 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 where he kind of delves into that that cultural setting of these these scriptures so i wouldn't glean scientific detail but i would glean the bigger picture from them i mean i look at at uh psalm eight where the psalmist um presumably a shepherd was looking up and and looking at the moon and the stars didn't know about galaxies yet but was saying mm. you know when i when i look at the moon and the stars i think you know what are humans that you're mm. mindful of us you know that same sense of kind of insignificance which is i think an appropriate response what are mortals that you you got even yeah. care about us? But yeah. he didn't stop there. The writer went on and said, and yet, you know, you've made us just kind of a little lower than God. And you've given us dominion over all these things, the, 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 the creatures on the earth, but also, you know, he's thinking about the stars above and realizing that we didn't have dominion in terms of actually touching the stars and doing things to them and yet i think that kind of dominion means a sense of understanding so that would encompass what we now call science um and so um i think the fact that we have understanding that we have science that we have curiosity that is something that we glean as a sense of significance that the bible teaches us mm -hmm. that we should have humility gratefulness and part of being something significant in terms of God's handiwork that we can glean from scripture. Yeah. The other one is Psalm 19, which is saying the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands using speech and knowledge without using words. It's a beautiful poetic Psalm, but it talks about how people all over the world are getting some kind of message just from looking at the heavens without hearing specific words or language and I think that's still the case for people around the world, whether or not we speak the same language and whether or not you're a scientist, if you have the privilege of seeing the night sky, which is getting harder to do, but or even mm -hmm. seeing some of these images from pro professional telescopes, you can mm -hmm. have that sense of awe and wonder that I that think is. is part of the message um, that the psalmist in Psalm 19 is trying to write about when he yeah. says the heavens declare the glory of God. And then the latter chapters of the book of Job are just marvelous passages talking about, you know, who are you, Job, when I, God, you know, put these different uh, stars into being and called them all out. So, so, you know, these are poetic psalms, not meant to be scientifically interpreted, but I think they're broader message of a, of an amazing universe um, that gives us a sense of something beyond ourselves 
and in scripture that that is god and god's care for us and god's love for us that is something that we can glean when we're feeling that, that sense uh, of awe and wonder looking at the universe yeah i i love the psalms you've mentioned i've, I've referenced them frequently myself and it is something worth bearing in mind that a shepherd 3,000 years ago would not have lived in a world sullied by light pollution as we do. And so I can imagine just how extraordinary the nighttime canopy of stars above him would be. Mm. And, and and it was so Carl Sagan was hardly the first person to say, look how insignificant we are. It's right there, as you say, in Psalm 8. It wasn't yeah. hard to see, you know, uh, even 3,000 years ago. I think for Christians, there's another piece of this, which is actually the central piece, which is what is the role of Jesus in the universe? Mm -hmm. You know, we, we, we sometimes think of the universe as being something that God is in charge of and that Jesus is kind of this afterthought that showed up on planet earth to kind of help us clean up our, our mess, um, <laughs> our sin mess. Um, but actually when you look deep into scripture, the word was with God in the beginning and and, yeah. and and the universe is created through that word and mm. that word of God became flesh in Jesus Christ. So, so God who appeared to us in Jesus Christ and really showed us the nature of God. And not only that through the, the death, the life, death and resurrection of Jesus gives us hope um, that God cares about us through thick and thin and through all eternity. Um, that is the central core of the Christian hope. And this Jesus who became flesh really became part of the universe that through whom uh, um, the universe was actually created. So it's a, it's a mind boggling interplay, but mm -hmm. uh, for Christians, the, the person of Jesus Christ is actually central to our lives and even to the very existence and future of the universe. And it gives us a good hope. You, you've done such a wonderful job just, well, firstly, melting our minds, but secondly, <laughs> re-enchanting the whole idea of the universe, mm. space. It's been a fantastic conversation. Really, really enjoyable, Jennifer. Um, if people want to find out more about you, what's what, what's the best way for them to, to go and find out more about your work? I, we've hardly mentioned the fact that you, you work on the Hubble Space Telescope and everything else. What, what where, where can people find out more? Well, there's, there's, there's many, uh, um, places. Uh, I don't, uh, have a big social media presence, so you're not going to have much luck there unless you just Google my name, <laughs> you'll find some, some talks around uh, the internet, but I would also encourage people to, uh, um, look at these websites of astronomical societies, the uh, Royal Astronomical Society, the American Astronomical Society, um, something called the the PASP, the Astronomical Society of the Pacific. Um, the, these websites have marvelous resources for understanding what's being discovered um, these days. And then if you're interested in the interplay of faith and science, there are many good resources. Um, you can start with the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion that's based right there in the UK. I recommend also Christians in Science, which is an organization based in the UK, um, a similar organization called the American Scientific Affiliation or ASA3.org, which is based in the US, and the BioLogos organization, B-I-O-L-O-G-O-S, BioLogos.org, which is designed to help uh, Christians see the harmony between the Bible mm -hmm. and mainstream science. 
So these are some of the organizations that come to mind. And of course, the the one you mentioned right at the top of the program is an organization that helps in a multi-faith way, looking at the interplay of science, ethics, and religion through a scientific society, Uh, um, which is called the Dialogue on Science, Ethics, and Religion of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. So that's triple A S. Uh, dot org slash doser <laughs> d-o-s-e-r so these are some places you can find out about um what's going on in astronomy um, and then how to think about the interplay of faith and science uh, also an organization called sinai and synapses.org if you can spell that you'll find right. an interesting website. <laughs> so, so these are great resources that i recommend mm-hmm. oh jennifer i don't want this conversation to end <laughs> thank you so much uh, you're very welcome. I'm I'm glad for your interest. And you know, there's a lot of things still to be discovering. We're still Ugh. finding out about um, black holes and and as I mentioned, dark matter, dark energy, um, and even in our own solar system, we're finding out very interesting dynamics that that uh, as we study uh, not only the comets and asteroids and planets in our own solar system, but we occasionally have a an interloper, a, a, an asteroid or comet that's been ejected from another star system that happens to pass <laughs> through our own. So we're learning a lot about these interstellar objects as well. Curious to know whether the moons around Jupiter and Saturn have water oceans under their icy crusts, like like uh, the moons uh, Europa and Ganymede. So there's a lot of exploration uh, ahead. And I think that's a wonderful human endeavor. I, I've always yeah. thought since childhood that this kind of exploration, just driven by curiosity, mm. um, is one of the best and most intriguing things humans can do. And it unifies the world in a sense. It, it draws people into a unified sense of curiosity and and hopefully wonder and and for some a sense of praise and joy. So so let's keep our curiosity and our joy and our excitement as we continue to learn more. And and I would be remiss if I didn't say that there are disturbing things as well. I mean, when we look at the natural world around us, we see some some ugliness going on in the natural hey. world and some violence uh, uh, things that happen and and those can be troubling too. But that's all part of exploration. Mm. So let's yeah. keep our curious hats on as we as we go forward and take some time every once in a while to just look up at the night sky and and uh be uh, rekindled in your sense of awe and wonder you've been a wonderful ambassador for that sense of curiosity Mm. wonder awe, and enchantment of the universe thank you so much jennifer for joining us on re-enchanting today my pleasure You've been listening to Reenchanting. In these early episodes, it makes a huge difference if you can rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening, and it helps others to discover the show. Thank you. You can also find more episodes, articles, and resources at seenandunseen.com. See you next time. <laughs>